Welcome to another edition of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. On today's show, we have special guest Bob Siegel, and we talk about biblical movies, the biblical epics of the 50s and other eras. We have a great show lined up for you today, and Mike, I'm going to turn it over to you so you can introduce our guest, and we're going to get started right away on this very interesting topic. Thanks, Mitty, and I first want to wish everybody out there, all our listeners, a prosperous, healthy, happy Easter 2011. It is my pleasure and honor to bring in a good friend of ours. He's the third jewel in the Triple Crown on our KCBQ Saturday Night lineup. Of course, we've got Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside at 8.30, followed by our good friend Mike Z with Saturday Night Sock Hop coming from 9 till 11. And right after that, we've got Bob Siegel. And Bob is one of the most interesting broadcasters I know. And we'll let him talk a little bit about his background, but he's also profiled a lot of the pop culture and how it ties in and connects directly with um, some of the religious ideas of the past 50 years, some of the religious inspirations that have gone into big movie production, a lot of the songs that have come about, and a lot of the tie-ins. We're a show about nostalgia, but mainly we do talk about how things do return and how things connect. And it is my pleasure to introduce Bob Siegel. Bob, how are you doing today? Great. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Good. Tell us a little bit about yourself, and then give us a little preview about what listeners can expect by staying on KCBQ after 11 o'clock and listening to you. Okay. Well, I am a full-time Christian apologist, and what that actually means is I'm a person who makes sense out of religion and deals with people who ask understandably skeptical questions, and instead of telling them that they should take it by blind faith, I give them reasons from archaeology, from history, from philosophy to accept the claims of Jesus Christ. On my radio show, the theme is Christianity and its relationship to politics and pop culture. Usually the first half of our show is a little more political. Second half is a little more religious. But I think it's all integrated because as Christians, we should care about the world around us and the society and the culture. And then we do a lot with pop culture. I interview uh, people like my good friend Mark Bubian, film critic. I have him on every couple of months. I've had Mike Zaccaro on uh, not too long ago. I had Keith Thibodeau, who played little Ricky on I Love Lucy, and later on became a Christian. I interviewed uh, David Zucker, director of the movie Airplane, when he made that movie called An American Carol, which uh, he had, he was a very liberal producer. 9-11 made him more conservative. So we, we have a, a very interesting time dealing with the pop culture on my show as well. Well, Bob, it is exciting because you do have that show. And let me add that the 11 o'clock is a taped version of your live show, which you produce 3 o'clock on Sunday. On right? 3 o'clock on Sunday. So the following Saturday will will carry a repeat of my Sunday show. Sometimes they forget to reload it. So, okay. so sometimes you hear the same repeat two weeks in a row, too. That's always fun. And if, like us, folks miss the airtime, can they find your shows on your website? Yes, my website is bobsegel.net. Siegel spelled S-I-E-G-E-L. Just remember .net and not .com. Or just do a Google search. I'm the first guy that pops up if you Google Bob Siegel. And, yeah, we have uh, several years' worth of shows posted right on the Internet. And, Bob, if I may just add, I love listening to Bob's shows. As, as we said earlier, I, I get a lot of stuff out that. I was I was raised in a fundamentalist Christian home, but Bob is Sunday school for us big guys. And it's just it's the greatest stuff because he doesn't take a position, yet he takes a position. He tells it like it is. He doesn't read from a script. And it's stuff you can take away, much like our show. He'll have guests on, do movie reviews. He'll talk about 
items in the news, and you just got to catch a show. And again, if you do miss the live air or the tape show on 11 o'clock Saturday nights, get a few downloads and listen to this guy because he's incredible. Bob, if I might even add, you were raised in a strong Jewish family. Yes, it was a liberal Judaism, so it wasn't, it was Judaism the culture, not Judaism the religion. And then in my second year of college, I actually had a mystical encounter with Jesus Christ, and it changed my whole life. My dad actually disowned me for becoming a Christian. So when Jesus says we must count the cost, uh, that's something I actually lived out in actuality. Outstanding. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you in here today, because you can give us both aspects, both views, so to speak, about what we're going to talk about today. And I first want to start out with a movie that I remember since I can almost remember watching television, and that occurred every Easter, the Ten Commandments. We would have Easter dinner, the relatives, the folks would leave Easter dinner, and my mom would be putting the food away, and about, I guess it was 4 or 5 o'clock Pacific, we were in Los Angeles, the Ten Commandments would come on, Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments, and I think it was on for four hours, but that was like It's a Wonderful Life around the holiday times. You never missed, it was almost a ritual to watch the Ten Commandments. Before I forget, Bob... A cast of thousands. Were there really a thousand people in these movies? Oh, there were more than that. It was probably more in the tens or twenty thousands, I would guess. It was just it, these days they do the computer graphics. Like if you look at Titanic, where the computer graphics weren't quite as good yet, you look at all the people on the boat, you can tell they're just drawn. Cecil B. DeMille really brought in all those people. He brought them in. He brought them in. And now occasionally they did interesting things, like in the uh, silent version of Ben Hur. In the top of the bleachers, they used little stick figures and and twisted them around. But then the bottom half of the bleachers were real people. And it gave it a, a more dramatic look. They added more scope to it. So sometimes they cheat like that. But, you know, I'm much more enamored with that. These days with computers, you look at special effects and you're going, well, they did it on a computer. And uh, even if we go back as far as the first Star Wars movie or Superman with Christopher Reeve, they were still doing those things with models or real explosions or real wire. And and there is this sense of mystique and mystery. How did they do this? Now we just go, well, they did it on a computer. And not to demean that because the the computer craft is is very talented. But, but boy, you, I love those old movies where you had to guess. How did they part the Red Sea? How, How did, did they, they do, do that kind of stuff? Yeah, and, and the color and the vivid and the gowns and the wardrobes of... The 1956 version, and we're coming. This is the 55th anniversary right. of the release. It's yeah. not the 55th Easter because it released in the theaters, I believe, in October 1956. So it, it it probably didn't even come to television until 1960. I can't tell you the year we began watching it on ABC, but to this day, and I may add, late last month we're taping in. It is April, of course, our Easter special. But in March. The Ten Commandments was remastered and re-released in Blu-ray. That's important this film was. And the message of the film, the quality of the film, just just the vivid color involved in the film, the robes, the, the action, the scenes, and it's got every element. It's got the 31 dramatic situations all rolled up into a four-hour film. Yeah, and I should say, I saw this movie in the theater. It was re-released in the theater, and I saw it as an atheist, a Jewish atheist who had not yet converted to Christianity and still just loved the movie found myself wishing it were true. What if there really was a God? What if he really had talked to Moses? Outstanding. So it became very exciting to become a Christian and have reason to believe that a lot of these things actually happened that way. Bob, how much of it was true? Uh, far more than we would realize. Now, if you follow the Bible, the second half of the movie, uh, from the time Moses goes away into the wilderness to Midian, that follows the Bible pretty clearly. And it looked, I always thought for years that 
just reading the Bible, that the first half, the first couple of hours with Moses in Egypt was fictionalized. Well, some of it was, especially Ann Baxter saying, Moses, Moses, you thick, lovable, adorable fool. Okay, that wasn't <laughs> that wasn't based on any ancient source. But I was very pleasantly surprised to find out that Cecil B. DeMille looked at the Midrash and the writings of Josephus and the writings of Philo to find other things to, to fill in there. So it, it's much more historically accurate than you would think, or at least it was based on historical sources, how true they all were, we don't know. You know, it's funny because I've seen the movie and there's a segment in there with, um, who's that British actor that was one of the, uh, you know, the elderly British actor? Oh, the guy that played Seti, the yeah. pharaoh? Yes. Uh, Cedric Hardwick. Yes, yes. And he kept calling the priest the old, you old windball. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that's a little not they probably, biblical. Uh, they probably, yeah, that's so funny. Whenever they do a biblical movie, they bring in somebody with a British accent so that he didn't sound American, but he probably didn't sound like an ancient Egyptian did either. And now these movies, this movie itself and other epics of the 50s, the biblical, all made money? They did. Biblicals were a surefire way of success. And the joke in Hollywood used to be that Cecil B. DeMille figured out how to put sex and violence in a movie before it was allowed and fashionable. That was to just call it a biblical <laughs> with the scantily clad women. And I mean, that movie's about as violent as anything you see, but this stuff actually happened in the Bible. He so he got his, away with it. I think he was doing the same thing in the 20s as well. Because oh, the 20s, they didn't even have a motion picture standard code true. yet. So he probably even, got, oh, I'll bet. Uh, I haven't seen the silent film version of it, but I'll bet you he got away with a lot more. In he really, but the, th the theory was he could do that because at the end, people would be redeemed. That yes. was the theory. Or if, or you went to Hades if you weren't. Or he was hoping people were so stupid that they figured since it's a biblical, there can't be anything wrong with it. it it's, a, it's a sanitized sex and a sanitized violence. So he did so get away with a lot of things. He did. He did. He figured it out. By the way, that's his a voice. When Moses meets God at the burning bush, that's the actual voice of Cecil B. DeMille. He's also the narrator throughout the entire movie. Wow. And, you know, one thing I also love about this movie is it begins when he walks out in front of the curtain. and he, Now, they don't always show that on ABC, but oh. if you get a dvd version you'll see it and that was in the theater he actually walks out and and talks about the movie and says this is an unusual way for a movie to begin but we have an unusual story and he talks about why he made it talks a little bit about some of those ancient sources that he referred to so it's, it's very interesting it certainly broke the mold i don't think i've ever seen that part of it bob i'm gonna have to get the dvd if you, yeah, on yeah. dvd you'll yeah. see the yeah, abc usually cuts that out yeah. they, abc probably cuts out other things so, uh this is a little interesting piece of trivia when they opened the amc 20 theaters here in san diego the very first night they had a charlton heston movie on every screen and heston came out partly to push this book he'd just written but they staggered the movies time-wise so that he could come out and talk to the audience for 10 minutes before each movie. I went to see Ben-Hur, but he talked a little bit about the Ten Commandments. And, of course, they asked him how they did that effect with the parting of the Red Sea. Right. Now, this is what Charlton Heston said. I haven't verified, but it, I figure Heston must know what he's talking He said they took a block of jello and melted it and then ran it <laughs> backwards oh, so that was uh wow. pre i i i can't oh, see that the, on the, the, the it goes up yeah yeah oh, i, I, I mean I, I it was it was pretty interesting so what about the religious message on this movie and what i mean by that bob is you look at the cast we did a little research but we brought in a cast and you had casts from all religious backgrounds superstars in their in their own right during that time demille who i understand was sort of kind of religious grew up in a religious home in a baptist home 
but there's no reference that we can find that he they went were, to church every yeah, Sunday. Yeah, and, and they were very careful with these movies. The yeah. religious message that you usually come away with is the brotherhood of man. The brotherhood, okay. Things like Even Ben-Hur, I was watching a documentary on that not too long ago. Even though they have the Christ figure in Ben-Hur, they're a little bit ambiguous about whether Judah Ben-Hur actually becomes a Christian at the end, a little ambiguous about whether the miracle that healed his uh, sister and mother who had become lepers was from God okay. or from Christ. Of course, as Christians, we believe God was Christ, but that's because they wanted to bring in a Jewish audience too. Another, I would call this a pretty big elephant in the room, and I can get away with saying this since yeah. I am Jewish. Other people <laughs> wouldn't be able to say that. As a Jew, there are a lot of Jewish people in Hollywood. These days to just say that, people say, well, you're being anti-Semitic. All right, I'm saying it as a Jew. And you know, uh, one of the problems over the years is Jewish people have been murdered in the name of being called Christ killers. So one of the retorts is, well, we didn't kill Christ. It was the Romans. Well, if you read the Gospels, it was a collaborative effort. Yes, it was the Romans that went and nailed him to the cross. But the Roman government would not have taken interest in Jesus if the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, hadn't gone and asked them to do it. Uh, of course, Jesus' followers were also Jewish, and not everybody in the Jewish population was guilty of this. But the Jewish religious leaders did at least ask for him to be killed. Now, you don't see that in Ben-Hur. You don't see that in the robe. In the robe, they even have a Roman, yeah, it was a Roman centurion who actually went out and offered money to Judas Iscariot. It wasn't the Sanhedrin. And so I think that's the, and it's understandable. There's been so much anti-Semitism in the name of calling Jews Christ killers. But for many years in Hollywood, the Romans were the guilty party when, mm -hmm. when Jesus was executed. What you're suggesting is we're all victims of political correctness, depending on what time we are. We are. Now, later on, when they finally started making movies like Jesus of Nazareth, television drama, certainly uh, Mel Gibson came under a lot of flack because they were interviewing him. And he was saying, well, there were only so many people that lived in those days. It was the Romans or the Jews. I mean, it wasn't uh, Swedes that did it. He was just kind of making the obvious obvious. And yeah, we're, we're in a very politically correct culture would, right now. With the subtlety of the message of the Ten Commandments, we talked about overcoming slavery. It's a biblical story. It, it was handled subtly. Would that subtleness in a religious-based movie work today, Bob? Would it work with would, who? Would it sell tickets? We, we, we've got a, well, you'd a have division more, you'd, of religions You'd have more today. people in the church complaining about okay. it today, I think. Okay. Whereas, yet in those days, it was just so common. To, I, I would imagine there were pastors who probably complained in those days, too. But Hollywood was much more religious-friendly and Christianity-friendly in those days. So I think there was there was a pretty good attitude. Uh, you know, it was it was a nice atmosphere between the two parties. I was curious about one thing, and maybe you can answer this for me. Sure. Because I was trying to nail down the success of Mel Gibson's story on Christ. Now, I have the passion a passion of the Christ. I have a theory, but you got to tell me if it works. Okay. If you go back far enough, say you take Ben Hur when it was a stage play in the 1800s before movies, that Jesus Christ was seen as a beam of light. That's the right? only way. That's the only, only way, way Lou Wallace would even agree to let Christ to. be portrayed on stage. You, you move up into the movie era, and now if you've seen the movies, you never get to see his face, the back of his head, Bad. or you see him from a distance. But Gibson was the only one that showed him suffering. Jesus of Nazareth, and uh, what was it? The greatest story ever told. You saw more of Jesus, but was I, he suffering? No, not to the degree that Mel Gibson did it, no. And Mel Gibson was the first one to just really accurately show us what went on in a crucifixion. And in a Roman scourging with the cat of nine's tail, which was a big, thick chunk of whip with like 
bones and glass and, and so that he, so that was the crux to the whole his moment yes movie. he was really concentrating on the on the execution and show so i always tell people that's every that's a movie everybody should see at least once it's not a movie you want to bring popcorn and milk duds and it's, it's pretty and it's pretty graphic very graphic very intense but you know it's it's good to see what actually happened. But the Jesus. point is, this movie couldn't have been made years ago. I don't think showing so. that kind of suffering. No, no. And I I actually think that in the robe and Ben Hur, when you didn't actually see Jesus, but you concentrated more on the people around him, I thought that was a better effect because it's very hard for somebody to portray Jesus. They went the few times that you would see him portrayed in films, he was too bigger than life. And I think the interesting thing about Jesus is, even though he was God incarnate, he came across as a very natural, normal human being. He, he was an ordinary Joe. I mean, if he came today, he'd probably be wearing a, a mustache and blue jeans and riding a bicycle or a skateboard. Of course, he had a robe in those days, but everyone wore a robe. There was nothing holy about robes. We've, we've made them holy later on. In those days, everybody wore a robe. And, and so I think we would lose something when somebody would portray Jesus, whereas Ben-Hur, the robe, it's dealing with the people's reactions to him. I actually thought that worked. Of course, they did it because they were afraid. How are you going to portray Jesus? And I should say the guy in Mel Gibson's movie, um, Caviezel, was that his name? He, I thought he did a very good job. But it's very difficult because people just can't resist the temptation to play Jesus larger than life. And the whole idea about God's incarnation is that he was trying to be ordinary life and not larger than life. That's great, Bob. And we're going to take a break here for a retromercial. And when we come back... We're going to ask our expert here, Bob Siegel, about some of the other religious epics of the 50s and 60s and how they would work today and what made them work so well back in the time. Right back with you after this retromercial. You're on Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. When you've got a job to do, reach for something good to chew. Chewing helps you stand the pace anytime and any place. So high ho Chew your little troubles away. Hi ho, hey hey, chew Wrigley Spearmint Gum. Work goes faster, smoother too. Life seems brighter when you chew. Hi ho, hey hey, chew Wrigley Spearmint Gum. It's good to sink your teeth into Wrigley Spearmint Gum. That lively flavor freshens your mouth. And the good chewing helps make the job go smoother and faster. Enjoy chewing Wrigley Spearmint Gum every day, as millions do. Hi-ho, hey, hey, chew your little troubles away. Hi-ho, hey, hey, chew Wrigley Spearmint Gum. Intact. Uncut, the original film, acclaimed as a supreme emotional experience. What a story it tells. That was a trailer from Ten Commandments, which we're hearing all about from our good friend Bob Siegel, who is our guest today on the show for our Easter special. We've just got done talking a lot about Ten Commandments and some of the uh, periphery that goes around the making of a religious epic. We just had our retro-mercial. I've got to tell you, I love these retro-mercials. Aren't they great? Oh, I do. would never have remembered that song again for the rest of my <laughs> Wrigley's life. Wrigley's Spearmint Gum. Now, did you get a cut from Wrigley's for all this free publicity? I hope so. <laughs> I hope if anybody from the Wrigley Company is listening. Uh, product placement, product, everybody. Exactly. This product, is product placement. placement. Oh, that's great. Wrigley's Spearmint Gum, too, which brought up that cast of thousands yeah, again. Thousands. Uh, we're rolling camera, spit out the gum, and take off your wristwatches. That's right. Because I understand in some of those multi-thousand, 
and cast uh, some people oh. <laughs> were out of wardrobe. So yeah, you have those anachronisms or a plane. I think I, a friend of mine saw an old Robin Hood movie where a plane flew overhead. Bob, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, we've talked about the Ten Commandments. There are quite a few other biblical epics, of course, uh, The Robe, Ben-Hur. Would you say that there was a, uh, what we could call a um, an era in Hollywood of biblical epics? Is it just seems like in the 50s, uh, these big color movies that all were... Would you say that there was a, yeah, an era? There was, like and for several reasons. One, we were a more conservative culture. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, when television first came out, everybody predicted it would be the death of movies. Well, that prediction didn't come true, but movies did struggle for a while. Ben-Hur actually saved Metro-Golden-Mayer, the version we're all familiar with with Charlton Heston. The earlier screen version of it, for other reasons, they were having financial problems, and that saved the neck of Metro Golden Mayor. Oh, okay. And religious films traditionally do excellent at the box office. Now, in the 60s and 70s, we have a lot of directors who care more about what the avant-garde, cutting-edge, politically correct peers in Europe think of the movies. They don't always care about whether they're making money. The producers care. The directors do not always care. And so that's why you don't see as many religious movies made. They're not not making them because they don't make money. Even a movie like The Sound of Music, which... I wouldn't call it a religious movie per se, but it's a true story of a woman who was a nun. And I mean, Christianity is a big part of the movie that saved 20th Century Fox, helped them recover from Mm -hmm. from Cleopatra. So. uh, So, yes, because they're money makers and because Hollywood just was an atmosphere more conducive to religion at that time for both of those reasons. Interesting. And technology wise, Bob, I'm pretty interested in the history of early TV, early radio. And going back to what you were saying, that they thought that television would be the death of movies. These movies were offering color, widescreen, stereophonic sound. That was another thing to induce audiences to come it to was, the movie. It was, yeah. Cinemascope and then later right. on Cinerama and then the 70 millimeter. That right. It makes a big difference. In fact, if you just go back a couple of decades, you know, the theaters were, were smaller. You were sitting in this little cubicle. Somebody was kicking your seat. Uh, VCRs had just come out. Movies were struggling again. And then they went back to these uh, theaters like the AMC 20 with the big, uh, not exactly Cinerama, but almost Cinerama curved style screen and stadium seating. So they've, they've had to stay a step ahead of the game. I remember that uh, Paul Newman was in, I think he was in the Silver Chalice. Yeah, and I'm not familiar with the Silver Chalice. No, what makes the, it interesting is because uh, I think it was a flop, and he wore, of course, uh, a skirt. <laughs> and, and he said, <laughs> Paul I'm Newman never, in a skirt. I'm never going to be in a movie again where I have to wear a cocktail dress. <laughs> yeah, that would explain why he wasn't in so many biblical epics then. Yeah, well, Silver funny. Chalice. Uh, was it, it the Silver Chalice? The Silver Chalice, uh, 1954, a couple of years before the release of Ten Commandments. And the Silver Chalice, it gave the start to a lot of lesser known. Actors oh. who became well known in their own right. Lauren Green first appeared. That was his first appearance in Silver Chalice. As with E.G. Marshall was in that movie. My. It <clears throat> bombed. It didn't do too well, and it was not one Paul Newman was very proud of. Jack Palance played Simon the Magician. Of course, this was also a time of anti-communism, so these would fit right in with uh, that theme. Well, I was going to ask you too yeah, about yeah, that, yeah, Bob. Yeah, yeah. Did that play into it, the, the commie threat, the Red Scare? And the Cold War. Well, they or, were, Yeah, they were afraid, and so yeah. that's the other thing, is, is uh, whereas these days making a biblical movie would not be a safe thing to do in Hollywood okay. in terms of peer pressure, in those days you couldn't go safer than a biblical movie, especially with the blacklisting and the threat of communism and accusations, sometimes true, sometimes false, of people being communists. So it's quite fascinating, these, these movies themselves. They were money makers. 
People were still going to the movies. The 50s, of course, we've got to say, was a time of a a rising economy. Yes, and the 50s, you know, it's kind of funny because you always hear people talk about the innocence of the 50s was phony and there were a lot of subjects we couldn't talk about. But, you know, some of it, I suppose, was phony that if if there were problems going on in a family, if somebody was a homosexual or something, you had to cover it up. But it is also true and undeniable that the families were just better in those days. We had mm-hmm. two-parent nuclear families. I'm not passing any judgment. I myself am personally divorced. So I'm not here to judge anybody. But we have been a better country when we've had better marriages, and that's mm-hmm. undeniable. It just seems that society was a lot more intact at that time, right, Bob? Yeah, it was. You know, as opposed to how it is today. And, re- you know, World War II generation is considered the greatest generation. Yes. We are all part of the baby mm-hmm. boomer generation, which is con- going to go down in history as a generation that either sunk or at least potentially sunk America. <laughs> but it just seems like the 50s was a crossroads of the post-war era, the uh, nuclear family still being very yeah. much... And then modernization. Had, modernization. You know, it was the decade uh, of television. Sure, the Cold War, the Red Scare, the advent of television. So all these things kind of contributed to making these... And we're the first generation to grow up on television. It's interesting, when you get back to the movies, the first generation of film directors grew up on books... Uh, second generation of film directors grew up on films and were inspired by seeing other people's films. Next wave got inspired more by television and it's really made Hollywood suffer like sequels. Um, don't get me started on sequels. I mean, there's a, there's a legitimate sequel. Star Wars was designed to be a series. Indiana Jones was designed to be a series. But when you make uh, City Slickers 2 only because City Slickers 1 did well, then it's not a legitimate story. And that's where... The television generation comes in, not to mention just remaking. You know, we have the movie version of Leave it to Beaver, the movie version of the Beverly Hillbillies. It just goes on and on and on. So we've we've suffered from the fact that different generations of film directors have had different kinds of inspirations. Like when they made a a remake of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, which was a brilliant movie. The director says, oh, I did this as a tribute to Alfred Hitchcock. I'm going, tribute? Hitchcock's turning in his grave that you did this thing. It's not a tribute. Siskel and Ebert made an interesting statement they, once. They said, why not take a movie that had potential but didn't deliver and remake that? Why take a classic and mess with that? Take a movie that didn't do so well and hmm. see if you can make it better. But when it's been, I mean, would we want to see a new version of It's a Wonderful Life? They no. made other versions mm-hmm. of Miracle on 34th Street. They were not nearly as good. So it, it never works out too well. And I think that's what happened with the epic of the Ten Commandments in the mid-50s. It wasn't a remake, and it was not a story remade about the Ten Commandments, but fast forward to the middle of the 60s, 1965, and you had the greatest story ever told. Yes, which was, which was not one of, and it was not one of my favorites, it, I thought. It, what was, yeah, what it was tanked. wrong with it? It, it tanked. <clears throat> it, well, there are too many superstars in it for one, and they were oh. all hamming it up against each other. Yeah, and I just it gets back again to what I was saying. The Jesus character was just acting so big. Ma- I think yeah, Max, Max Van Sydow, just, yeah. you know, the look on his face. They just tried to make him too bigger than life. Another problem I have with Hollywood's version of Jesus and the Passion is they always somehow make Judas Iscariot into the hero. They did this ultimately with Jesus Christ Superstar. Judas was the disciple who loved Jesus the most, and and yet he had to be willing to betray him, and he was making a sacrifice. The Bible doesn't portray it that way. The Bible portrays Judas as an evil man who had a demon, and and, uh, Hollywood has really sanitized Judas Iscariot. And a lot of these stories just got totally lost in translation and message because of the superstars involved. George Stevens, who did Greatest Story Ever Told, he joked around because Charlton Heston, played John the Baptist, and they called him on the set. He was known as uh, Charlton the Heston. 
<laughs> it, it, it almost the whole production almost yeah. became farce. Yeah. So, well, we're going to wrap it up, and we certainly do appreciate you for coming in on this oh, show. Oh, my Bob. pleasure, yeah. guys! It was a blast. It's I so nice it. when all of us love this stuff, and sure. we could talk for another two hours oh, about it. Bob, hopefully you'll come back and visit us again. That would be my pleasure, and hopefully the three of you will come on my show. We'd love it. We'd love to do fun. that. Bob, tell us again your website. My website, bobsegel.net. Okay, bobsegel.net, and your show is heard on KCBQ. KCBQ three to four on the live show, three to four on Sunday afternoons. Repeat broadcast the following week, eleven to twelve, right after Saturday night sock up. And I agree, we got a nice, powerful lineup on Saturday. Oh, we night. do. You got your yeah. show, sock up, and then the Bob Siegel show. Oh, excellent. You, you get tired of hearing infomercials about vitamin D <laughs> and uh, how much you need more calcium no, in your diet. Kidding. No, <laughs> start light years <laughs> beyond the infomercial. Hop on KC. CBQ at 830 on Saturday nights and stick around, get a big bowl of popcorn and dig in till midnight. You're going to learn some stuff here. Anyway, that's it for another episode of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We are the Retro Talk Show where we tell you all about the stuff of yesterday, yesteryear, and a whole lot of baby boomer stuff. Again, thanks. You can catch us at galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. That's our website. Remember, it's Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight, S-I-T-E. We thrive. We build future shows based on your emails and your input. We can be reached by email at galaxymoonbeamnightsite at gmail.com. And until the next episode, I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And I'm Ian. And I'm Bob. Happy Easter, everybody. Thanks. We'll be talking again soon.